Morning, everyone, and uh, thank you, Roy. If you do have a Bible, I could invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. I think it's page 969 in the, the Bibles in the pews, and we're going to talk about anger. This is our uh, fifth week listening to Jesus' world-changing speech, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And from verses 21 through to 26, or to 48, actually, Jesus talks about a number of heart issues, uh, and anger is one of those heart issues. In fact, it's a key heart issue. Now, last Sunday, we, we finished at Matthew 5, verse 20, where Jesus comes out with what, at face value, seems to be a really surprising and shocking statement, because he says this, for I tell you, That unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not, certainly will not, enter the kingdom of heaven. And how how is that possible? Because we know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were often seen as the epitome of righteousness. But as we thought about that, we discovered that Their righteousness worked from the outside in. They spent hours upon hours of time and energy making sure that they looked good on the outside. Doing everything right. Doing everything by the book. But they neglected the heart. And so on a later occasion, Jesus would describe them as whitewashed tombs. You're great looking on the outside, but inside you're full of death, you're full of decay, you're full of dirt. The Pharisees and and the teachers of the law, they they peddled and promoted this idea that, that righteousness did in fact work from the outside in. But Jesus arrived on the scene declaring that kingdom righteousness operated from the inside out. It's a heart issue. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And so it's this kind and quality of righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. That's the kind that goes beyond, that exceeds. And it's that kind of righteousness that provides entry into the kingdom of heaven. Now as Jesus continues to to speak and teach, he then teases this out. So he's made this shocking statement, but then he teases it out. And he describes how this inside-out righteousness impacts or should impact the lives and relationships of his world-changing community. And the first heart issue that Jesus speaks into, the first heart issue he addresses, is anger. Why did he start here? Why, Why choose anger? It's interesting. I'll guarantee you it kind of grabbed everybody's attention because it's a heart issue that we all recognize. And in these next 28 verses, Jesus begins each section with with exactly the same phrase. So here's what he says. You've heard it said. Now here's what I say. You've heard it said. Here's what I say. Now last week we we looked at the fact that that Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. And and we said what he meant by that was he was here to complete the story. 
And so in using this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say, Jesus is not dismissing what's gone before. He's, he's not dismantling it. So Louis says, you have heard it said. He's not saying, listen, okay, this is what has gone before. You can forget that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's simply taking what was said to another, deeper, whole other level. Jesus didn't come to drive the law into the ground. He came to drive it into your heart. That's what he's about. As the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, there's a day coming when God's going to write his law, not on tablets of stone, but he's going to engrave them into your hearts. And in Jesus, that day had come. That day had arrived. So, you have heard it said, not dismissing that, not dismantling that. But let me take it deeper. So let's stand for the public reading of God's word. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin or to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell or Gehenna. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come, then offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Grab a seat. You kind of assume that that those who were listening to Jesus first time round couldn't quite believe what he's just said. To say that this was a radical ethic would be an understatement. And 2,000 years later, and despite the fact that many of us have heard this numerous times, there is still something profoundly challenging and slightly uncomfortable about these words and the implications of them. And so whenever people read this material, they react to it in different ways. And so for some people, it just sounds stupid. Crazy, insane. For others, it's actually offensive. For many, it, it sets an unattainable standard. This is just impossible idealism, Jesus. And then there are those whose default reaction is to reinterpret. Let's dilute this. Jesus can't have meant what it seems he meant. So I tell you what, let's tone it down. Let's take the sting out of this and attempt to make it more palatable. G.K. Chesterton 
once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And you know, nowhere, nowhere is this more true than in the Sermon on the Mount. Nowhere. And particularly whenever you get the verses 21 to 48. And so when people read what we have just read, there is this tendency, listen, let's, let's adapt this rather than adopt it. Was Jesus really expecting anyone to embrace this and live accordingly? Like, was he really? So before we, we kind of engage with the actual text, let me say a few things about that mindset. See, in verse 19, have a look at it. We touched on this last week. Jesus explicitly says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices these commands. And then beginning in, in verse 21, he shares these commands. And so... I suggest that Jesus was wanting his new community to actually walk this way. Fast forward to the end of the sermon. Again, showed this last week. If you go to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 says this. After Jesus finishes, as he finishes, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, great, and puts them into practice. is like the wise man who built the house upon a rock. And then take it even further. Go to the very end of Matthew's gospel. Go to chapter 28. As Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make more disciples of all nations. What does he instruct them to do? Go make disciples. Teaching them to do what? To obey Everything I have commanded you. What are some of the things Jesus commanded them? What are some of the things Jesus commanded us? Well, I reckon most, if not all, of what Jesus commanded us is contained in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, I want to stick my neck out. I'm not sure we have the luxury of avoiding or watering down the concentrated content you find in these chapters. But there's another aspect we need to bear in mind as we wrestle with this material. We haven't got to the text yet. Okay? And that is, what has gone before? Particularly the first 16 verses. Where Jesus clarifies our identity. We've looked at this. If you've been journeying with us, we've looked at this. Jesus clarifies our identity. Who we are is this new community of the king. And what does he say we are? You're the called, you're the blessed, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. That, that, that's who you are. So as the called, we're not alone in this because as we looked at, this is a transforming call. Therefore, we're not expected to confront and deal with anger in our own strength. If any of us were left to deal with anger in our own strength, we'd be stuffed. But we're not. We belong to, we've been called to belong to, and we've been empowered by a world and life changer who indwells us by his Holy Spirit and therefore gives us the ability and the power to do this, live this, practice this, teach this, obey this. Secondly, we are the blessed week two. We are those who live the God-blessed life. 
the poor in spirit, the pure in heart. But as you think about anger, you've got to align yourself with the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers. And therefore, we won't or can't water this down. Otherwise, we become harsh unmerciful and aggressive. And then we are the salt and the light. We are a preserving presence and a visible witness. But again, thinking about anger. How can we be these things with any integrity or authenticity if we voice off and hold grudges and call people names and speak about people behind their backs in destructive ways? How? How can we be a preserving presence and a visible witness? We will preserve very little. In fact, we will wreck and we will destroy stuff. And we certainly won't be a bright witness in a dark world and we won't point anyone to God. So, as we, it's heavy, isn't it? So as we now engage with what Jesus says and teaches I want us to listen carefully because I believe we are called to take this to heart and live it. Why? One, in obedience to Jesus. Two, in light of who we are. That's the way it works as I I understand this. So, Jesus begins by quoting the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Exodus 20, 13. And then Jesus adds a bit about judgment. Now remember, he's been talking about a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And you see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they loved this principle, do not murder. Because you see, that kind of kept it at arm's length. Over there, only relevant to really, really bad people. The slightly sick and twisted in our society they themselves would never dream of taking somebody else's life and therefore they could be proud of their behavior. Their strict adherence to this command, box ticked, command kept, never murdered anyone. Jesus takes us to a radically different level. Jesus takes it from outward behavior to motives of the heart. From outside-in righteousness to inside-out righteousness, Jesus speaks to the heart of the matter and he says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And you can imagine the reaction, are you serious, Jesus? Are you serious? That if I'm angry with my brother or sister, which might result in negative thoughts, and insulting comments, and slightly heavy-handed action, but I'm never going to take their life. Are you saying that that is somehow tantamount to murder in God's eyes? Like, are you? Well, let's be... I'm not going to answer that. Let... Let's be clear or as clear as we can be about the anger Jesus is referring to. This is not the temporary flash of anger that flares up when, say, someone pulls out in front of you in traffic. 
and you lose it for a moment and share a few thoughts with them. Wave. (laughs) And then it kind of fades and it goes away shortly afterwards. Now, that's not the type of anger. It's not a particularly Christian reaction. And I would suggest that there's lots of other scriptures that kind of speak into that attitude and outburst like self-control. But that's not the kind of anger Jesus is talking about here. Secondly, this is not about so-called righteous anger. Whatever that is for us. And I'm slightly nervous when I hear people saying, but, but this is just righteous. And Jesus got angry. I, I, I'm just expressing righteous anger. There's a fine line between righteous anger and where that kind of tips over a balance. But anyway, it's not righteous anger. Yes, there is a place for appropriate anger whenever we see, come across situations of injustice. But however complex and complicated that is and what that means for us to express it, that's not the kind of anger Jesus is dealing with here in Matthew 5, 21 following. The type of anger that Jesus is dealing with here is the relational kind. It's the anger that broods and simmers between people. This is the anger you, you hold on to. This is the anger you harbor. That kind of anger is a serious heart issue because unless it's addressed, It'll set you on a path of destruction and judgment. Which is why it is referred to in certain traditions as one of the seven deadly sins. It's why in the remainder of the New Testament, writers such as the Apostle Paul will implore us, get rid of anger. In fact, he he instructs us to do even more than that. He says, get rid of all bitterness, all rage, all anger, all harsh words. Get rid of them. And slander. Why? Because this stuff is toxic. On Sunday nights, we're uh, we're reading our way through the story of David. And, And Saul is a stunning and tragic example of someone who became angry, let it fester, and then found himself in a path of judgment and destruction. And Jesus recognized, Jesus understood the dangers of this heart issue. And therefore, he wants us to avoid this destructive path. And so as he continues to speak, he intensifies his teaching by talking about the dangers of verbal abuse and character assassination. The kind of things that unchecked anger causes, creates, leads to. And the two words that Jesus refers to here, and I read them out for you, raka and fool. Raka was an Aramaic term of contempt. And to call anyone a fool in that culture was generally seen as demeaning and offensive. And in our culture, in our context, there are any number of modern equivalents. And I'm not even going to go and try to suggest some. You you can think those three for yourself, but there's heaps of them. And even though we may never lash out, we're never physically abuse anyone, it seems... That calling people names 
speaking about them with contempt has got extreme, stark, sobering consequences. Say Raka, says Jesus, and you are answerable to court. Call someone a fool and you're in danger of the fire of hell. Gehenna, the name of the place where Jerusalem's rubbish was dumped and burnt. Do you know, whatever Jesus meant by that, The point is clear. For, for me, it's clear. This matters in the kingdom of heaven. Really matters. You shall not murder remains a valid command. Jesus isn't doing away with that. Of course he isn't. But he takes it deeper. He takes it to a heart level. He takes it to the issue of our motives and our attitude. And he asks... Not have you murdered someone? Have you got anger in your heart? That's brooding. That's simmering. That you're hanging on to. See, Jesus knew and knows as he would make clear later that it's out of your heart that the mouth speaks. From the heart comes evil thoughts murder that's where it starts so what do we do with it and this is not a sermon addressing everything about anger or what we should do with it could do with it but let's look at what jesus says here about how this inside out righteousness plays out in practice verse 23 Therefore, and most of you will know that there's a, there's a pattern in these verses that kind of runs right throughout the rest of this chapter. And if you were here a couple of years ago, whenever David McMillan took us through the Sunday evening series on just peacemaking, he, he drew our attention to this. So you've got this bit where Jesus says, you have heard it said, I say, therefore. You have heard it said, I say, so. In other words, there's something you need to do about this. And therefore, using two different situations and scenarios, Jesus effectively says, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rushing this. this, this is just the bottom line. What Jesus effectively says is, listen, sort it out. Confront your anger. Seek reconciliation. Do whatever you can. And, and I mean, there's lots to this, but I'm saying it as... Saying as much as I can. Do whatever you can to heal relationships that have been affected and damaged by your anger. In the first scenario, the context is worship. You're on your way to offer your worship. And on your way, you remember that, and, and get this, you remember that someone has something against you. You want to worship God, but there's a relationship that's not right. Now notice that it doesn't say, and this really struck me this week, it doesn't say you're on your way to worship and you remember that you've got something against someone. You're on your way to worship and you remember that someone has got something against you. Which refers to a situation where, where you've caused someone to become angry with you. 
You have done something wrong to provoke anger in someone else that has created and caused tension in a relationship. And therefore, it's up to you to set your gift down and go and address the problem before you continue to worship. Go admit you've messed up. Seek forgiveness. Seek reconciliation, which is a deeply countercultural thing to do. John, John Stott, writing about these verses, says this. This is a very provocative take on it. If you're in church in the middle of a service of worship and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, Leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait till the service is ended. Seek out your brother, ask his forgiveness. First go, then come. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your worship to God. Can you imagine if you actually did that? (laughs) But why not? As kingdom people, If we have said or done something wrong to cause someone to have something against us, maybe we've spoken sharp words. Maybe we've labeled someone. Maybe we've become or been angry or we've caused angry. Let's do something about it. Let's say we're sorry. Let's seek reconciliation. Let's attend to the deep places of our hearts. Because at the end of the day, as, as I understand this, and this is one of the core reasons why Jesus spoke like this, our relationships with each other impact our relationship with God. Love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. You, you can't have one without the other. In the other scenario, the setting's legal. If we do something wrong that causes someone to take us to court, so again, we're the ones who have messed up, we need to grab the initiative and try to put things right before it hits the chamber. Admit your fault. Confess your mistakes. Settle the dispute quickly. Why? Because anger will fester and then it will wreak havoc and you will find yourself staring at prison bars. The other person may not accept your confession or your admission of wrongdoing, but that's out of our hands. It's your call to search your heart and restore the relationship where possible. And so this is demanding, and I'm nearly done. This is demanding, and you can understand why so many people run for cover from this teaching. But to run, to dilute To take the sting out of it would be to miss the point. Jesus is not speaking these words to simply keep raising the bar higher and higher and higher so that none of us can do this. This is not about putting it beyond our reach. Jesus came to transform us from the inside out, to change our hearts. Jesus knows that anger and angry words can bring about their own small deaths in our relationships. And therefore he wants to and he came to renew us from within. He is the one who makes it possible. It's all about Jesus as we said last week. This inside out righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is possible. Why? It's only possible because of Jesus. And so as his kingdom people we can choose to embrace a different way. We don't have to buy into this culture that we live in. 
And so we back to Paul's instructions from Ephesians 4, get rid of bitterness, angerness, rage, harsh words, and start get rid of them. But what he would do instead, be kind to each other. Tender-hearted. Forgiving. And because of Jesus who indwells us by his Holy Spirit, we can truly live like this. And is this not the kind of community that we want to be part of? Is that not a liberating rather than a a restrictive way to live? You see, if you domesticate and tame this teaching down, you sell yourself and everyone else short. This is the God-blessed life. This is what meekness and mercy and peacemaking looks like in the everyday. This is what it means to be a preserving presence and a visible witness. This is deep stuff in more ways than one, but it is life and world-changing. And so, as you reflect on the teaching of Jesus regarding anger, let's admit where we've got it wrong. Let's say sorry. Let's seek forgiveness and reconciliation as part of our worship.